Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're doing Chapter 5, Models of Divine Knowledge. And as you can tell from the title and what I teased last time, is this is just beginning to go into the question of omniscience, if you will, or the understanding by most Christians and even Mormons that somehow God has knowledge of the future. And we're going to go over that idea, its implications, and some problems with different models of that. So to start us out, just kind of introduce before we go into the first section, have a few quotes from the book we want to go over. So, just as we said from the outset, directly in the book it says, The question I want to explore here is how God knows what he knows, and, more particularly, how God knows what has not yet happened. So, as you can tell, there's the idea that if God knows the future, and it hasn't happened yet, then how is that exactly happening? But, first we go over why is it important to even have foreknowledge for believers, and... An example you give in the book is just this metaphor of, like, let's say there was some dude in Tasmania who happened to memorize the encyclopedia, or I guess we would now say he could memorize all of Wikipedia, because it's, you know, we got the internet now. Well, let's say he's downloaded the internet to his brain. Sure, he has all, all knowledge and maybe even future events. Like, that's cool, and you would... You know, he'd be revered and you'd go to him and ask him about your stocks or about when you're going to die and stuff like that. But that's not enough to be a deity because what's important for deity is not simply knowledge. It would have to regard your personal salvation, at least according to what you posit here. And so the reason some sort of foreknowledge has been important throughout Christian history is because of an idea of God's providence. And you give a definition of that, saying, Providence involves the beliefs that God freely and knowingly plans, orders, and provides for all that will occur in the entire history of the universe. It also involves the thesis that God executes his freely chosen plan by playing an active causal role in a way sufficient to ensure that his plan will be realized. And so I think this is more akin to what people understand. It's like The reason God will have this knowledge is that so he can providentially plan for the future, and just, I guess, the very idea that God has a plan. And we hear this all the time as Mormons, that God has a plan for you and your life, or if something bad happens, you just say, oh, don't worry, it's all part of God's plan. And it's it's a very important thing for Mormons and just Christians in general. But it's not necessarily required for salvation. If you examine it, you posit that. Anyway, as far as an introduction goes, is there anything else you want to say about just the basic concept? Um, simply the notion that having omniscience without having providential control would be interesting, but it wouldn't be very useful. God would be an egghead without the ability to really get things done, so to speak. So what we're talking about is how does God's knowledge of what will happen in the future allow him to interact with the world in order to ensure the realization of his plan? And of course, there are different models of providence. Um, you have a Calvinistic notion of providence where essentially God brings about whatever occurs. On most understandings of Thomas Aquinas' theory, God is also causally active in a way that virtually everything that happens is caused directly by God. You have other views in which God doesn't cause everything to occur that occurs, but there are secondary causes in nature that bring things about and God allows them to occur. And then you would have a, a providential view say, for instance, of process thought where God not only doesn't cause what occurs, he's only a co-cause and can't really bring things about unilaterally. So you, we have generally, I've gone from the, the strictest notion of providence, the Calvinist slash strong providential view of Thomism, to the least providential, which is um, a notion of process thought. And we have ranges all the way in between and those views of Arminius, who is a Protestant, and of Luis de Molina and Francisco Suarez, who are Catholic theologians writing in the 15th and 16th centuries, which would fall somewhere in the middle. So there's a wide range of beliefs on this issue, and we're going to dive into a few of them here. 
I guess one thing you note before we go in is just it seems fairly evident, though, that if you adopt the absolutist or strong providence view, meaning that God pretty much literally is the cause of everything that's happening, then it conflicts pretty strongly with free will, which is important for Mormons and many other Christians, but not all, I guess. All right, well, let's dive into the first section here. It's simple foreknowledge is the name of it. Uh, read this here. It says, the first view of divine foreknowledge is the notion that what is knowable includes all and only those events that will actually occur. A proposition is true and thus knowable by God because it corresponds with things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. So this idea is basically that God knows one future, meaning because that's the only one that will be actual, so he knows all true propositions, you could say, and propositions about future events are true or false, and so he knows all the true propositions. Then that has some interesting implications. But before we go into that, the reason that this, or at least a strong evidence that Mormons could bring up is in Doctrine Covenants 9324, and that on its surface seems to indicate this same idea that Basically, God knows the future. And so, based on that, what are the implications for that as Mormons, if that scripture is how it is? Is it? Well, this is a definition of truth, not a definition of knowledge. And if to be omniscient means that you have to know all truth, then God would have to know things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come, according to DNC 93 and 24. It's not really speaking about divine knowledge. It's speaking of a definition of truth, which is a distinct idea. There are two ways of thinking of simple foreknowledge. So simple foreknowledge is only of those things that will actually occur. It doesn't include things that might occur, but didn't occur. One is you have the causal arrow moving from the future back to God. That is, God knows what he does because the future somehow acts upon God to cause him to have a knowledge of it. This is more or less a perception model. So it's like the light that travels from the light bulb to the retina of our eyes and the photons act upon the retina to cause it to have a notion of whatever we're seeing. So we're being acted upon. And the notion here is that God is being acted upon somehow by the future so that he has a knowledge of it. The other notion would be the causal arrow in the other direction. All causes flow away from God. So on a Thomas view, nothing acts on God. But God causes the future to be what it is, or in some sense, whatever occurs has to have God's concurrence with it so that it can't occur unless he agrees with his causal powers to bring it about. And so we have these two different models of simple foreknowledge. And the problem with simple foreknowledge is fairly obvious and glaring, and that's that God cannot use it as a guide to his decisions if, what, if we use the perception model of divine foreknowledge. And here's the reason. If the future exists before God can do anything with it, so that it causes him to have a knowledge of it before he can interact with it, then the future is simply what it is or will be, and God can't cause it to be different than it is. He's simply stuck with the fate that he sees will be. And I give an example. We have a, a wonderful young lady. Her name is uh, Mary, and she wants to know who she should marry. And she has two suitors. One is Ralph and one is John. And she wants to know who she should marry, so she prays to God, and God responds to her, Look, I've seen the future, and you will marry John rather than Ralph. Oh, and by the way, it's a mistake, and you will be miserable. And Mary thinks to herself, Well, of course, I'm not going to do that, because I don't want to make a mistake. And the only response that could be given is, Sorry, God's already seen that it's going to be the case, and you can't change what God has seen is going to be the case. <laughs> and so you're stuck with this fate that God has disclosed to you. Here's the kicker. Not even God can change it. He's seen that it is in fact the truth that Mary will choose to marry John rather than Ralph and that it will be a mistake. And so God can't use his providential power to make a difference because the facts that give rise to his knowledge are logically prior to any act that he could bring about. And so simple foreknowledge turns out to be providentially useless if we have this this notion that the future is already there in some sense, causing the present to be what it is. It's also strange because what we're talking about when we're talking about the future, what we call future contingents. A contingent thing is something that might or might not be. But clearly, if God has foreseen the future, it's not contingent in that sense, because if God has foreseen that it will be, then there's no possibility that it won't be. <laughs> 
And so how could it possibly be the case that there are future realities that have already caused a result in the present, and yet they might not occur? The very notion just seems incoherent on its face. And so simple foreknowledge has some severe problems, the greatest of which is that it's just providentially useless. Right, no, and that was what I saw to be the strongest point, too. It's just, like I said, like it pretty much renders God powerless in that even if he sees the future and he has all power, if he's tied to this one future and no other future can be actual because that is the actual future and he's seeing it, can't do anything about it. And that seems obviously not what people believe when they're praying. So interesting. But, you know, if you don't examine that belief, then most people still believe both things at the same time and kind of believe a contradiction. Right. The response to that is, well, part of what God sees are the actions that he will, in fact, do to bring about the future. So he's seeing not merely the future, he's also seeing the acts that he does. And so it still makes sense that God could providentially be involved. So, for instance, we have a person who is praying in a sense of petitionary prayer, a prayer to ask God to change things from the way they may be. And the answer that God is doing these things because of what he foresees he will do is still logically incoherent. In other words, it gives rise to what I, it, we have a, a logical and a causal circularity of explanation. So given this kind of explanation, we have the future event that God sees giving rise to his knowledge. That causes God's knowledge of the event, which causes God's act, which brings about the event based on his foreknowledge, which then causes the future event. But one can clearly see that this is a vicious circularity. Nothing is explained because they all depend on each other for explanation. And so the kind of explanation that's given, well, part of what God foresees are his own acts and providential acts, is that the, the notion of the knowledge of the future is still useless, and the explanation itself is a logically vicious circularity which renders it incoherent. All right, well, that pretty well covers that, um, at least the basic concept. Is there anything else you want to do on that section before we move on? Yeah, I mean, we're asking how God knows what he knows. And given this model of simple foreknowledge, God knows what he knows because the future somehow exists to cause him to have knowledge of it. And the response that's given by a Christian philosopher known as William Lane Craig is, well, look, it's just part of what it means to be God to have this kind of knowledge. And so if you're asking, how does God know? The answer is, well, he's God and so he knows. But that doesn't seem to me to be much of an explanation. Remember, the issue here isn't whether foreknowledge is logically compatible with free acts that will occur in the future. The question here is, what is the basis of God's knowledge, and how does he know the future that might or might not occur? And know it in a way that, that leaves it contingent so that it may or may not occur. All right, so in this statement, you're saying William Lane Craig is basically just asserting that it's part of God's nature to know all things, and there's no other explanation other than he's God, therefore he knows. Yeah, and I lay out what I consider to be the four exhaustive possibilities of explanation. The first is there is no explanation. It just happens that the beliefs and events always correspond. So the God's beliefs just happen to correspond with future events. The second is the beliefs are determined to be the way they are by the events. The third is that the events are determined to be the way they are by the beliefs. And the fourth is that both the beliefs and the events are determined to be the way they are by some other factor. But it can't be the case that the events are determined to be the way they are by God's beliefs, because then they wouldn't be contingent. If God is bringing something about, it's not contingent. It's determined by God's causal activity bringing about. And my free acts, for instance, can't be brought about by God, because by nature they're brought about by me and not by something else. It can't be that the explanation is the beliefs are determined to be the way they are by the events. And that's because the events are not there to cause God's beliefs yet. And there's no way that the events that occur in the future could still be contingent if they've already had present causal effects. So it's absurd to assert, well, yes, this event, it's like, okay, yes, the target shattered, but he may or may not pull the trigger that causes the bullet to discharge from the gun, causing it to shatter. Obviously, if you're explaining the fact that the target shattered because somebody shot a gun, but you're describing in terms of backwards causation, once the event that has been caused by the present occurs, you can't back off and say, well, it may or may not occur. It can't be that, that it's just by luck that there just happens to be a correspondence between what God believes and the way the future events happen to turn out. So that kind of leaves us with four, that beliefs and events are determined to be the way they are by some other factor. 
But what could that factor be? And I've never seen anybody elucidate what that factor could be in a way that left the events in the future undetermined and still contingent. And so it seems to me that if we're going down this road of simple foreknowledge, we have a providentially useless view of divine knowledge. And if we get right down to it, it doesn't explain how God could know future contingents in a way that leaves them contingent in a way that they may or may not occur. All right. So basically just asserts it without explaining it and everything. All right. So before we go forward, we do need to discuss the A and B theory of time. I know we've discussed this before, but maybe if you didn't hear that particular section on the other podcast, we'll talk about it now. So there are two, I mean, I'm sure there's more, but there's two main theories of time that are held to. The A theory of time is also known as presentism, meaning only the present moment actually exists. And so the past is actually the past and it no longer exists and the future does not yet exist and is not yet known. And so we'll get there eventually, but it's not now. They're different tenses. Whereas the B theory of time is that all time exists just as like every moment of time is just as real as another moment of time. It's just your relative positioning or perception of that time. And there's valid points to both. You make a case for Mormons accepting the A theory of time. Why do you think the A theory of time is more compatible with Mormonism than the B theory of time? Because Christianity is based upon the notion of real change. That is, there has to be space for repentance, where I'm at one time in a state of being either A, sinful, or B, morally culpable for those acts that I do. And those are not the same concepts, so I want to distinguish them. But there's solidly within Christianity a notion of repentance, which says that what I was, I no longer am because of my repentance and the effect of the atonement. Also, the notion of incarnation, or as Mormons would call it, a condescension, where God becomes man. There has to be a space for a genuine distinction between the way that God was before becoming mortal as opposed to the way he is after becoming mortal. I know that the notion of timelessness is a very popular one, but when we get down to analyzing what's really entailed in the B theory of time, it makes nonsense of the kinds of commitments about moral reality, about the times of commitments, about the changes that we actually undergo and growth. Physicists may say, well, you just don't see reality, you're living in the matrix, but that seems to me to take us down a rabbit hole we're not going to recover from. These are merely theoretical mathematical contrivances that the physicists use, in my opinion. I would call it somewhat of a conceptualism. That is, their notion of mathematics is conceptual. It doesn't exist in reality. It's simply the way humans think about it. And they have idealized time as a fourth dimension with the three dimensions of space as a means of using mathematical transformations to discuss the theory of relativity. But they're merely mathematical transformations for for means of convenience. And yeah, kind of, at least as a metaphor for like this backwards causation that you were talking about before, a good thing that I think everyone, or at least from a certain age, has probably seen is the movie Back to the Future. He goes back to the past and he almost causes himself not to be born. There's a lot of movies that explore the paradoxes and contradictions of time travel and the effects that would have a cause and effect and so forth. Like, if the past event is caused actually by a future event, I don't know, it just it gets really paradoxical. And I'm not sure it's paradoxical. Paradoxical means that you have two propositions that appear to be contradictory, but in fact they can be reconciled as consistent. It seems to me that time travel is in fact contradictory because what you're asserting is that one set of events having occurred is true, but also that another alternative set that is logically inconsistent with what you've asserted to be the truth is also true. So we have two logically inconsistent sets of propositions that describe reality, which means that we have to give up the most basic laws of logic, the law of the excluded middle, and basically any idea of the truth of events and propositions. And so I'm just going to assert that any consistent logic is going to be vixiated if we allow time travel. It makes for great movies. <laughs> yeah, it does. it does. A lot of them. <laughs> Let's go on to timeless knowledge through perception. And so this is kind of more about what we've been referring to. So this view presupposes the B theory of time. And kind of the main idea in this section is that God's knowledge of events is not limited by time or the perception of time like it is for humans. And you derive this kind of train of thought from two areas. One, there is this uncritically analyzed assertion in pretty much every author in the Bible that God is eternal, 
meaning he's, you know, he's existed before and he is in the future too, I guess. Can you kind of explain what you mean by that? In the Hebrew Bible, when it says that God is eternal, it's usually using the, the phrase ha-halam, which is the Hebrew phrase meaning it's a long time. <laughs> like an aeon would be the English translation. It doesn't really mean timelessness in the philosophical sense that there is no before or after, but all things exist in one eternal now simultaneously. And I want to point out, Augustine's notion of timelessness is not identical to Boethius's notion of timelessness, neither is identical to Thomas Aquinas's notion of timelessness and so forth. So we have nuances in the idea of timelessness, but they all have this in common. There is no before or after. All things past, present, and future are somehow present before, with, or in God. And so the notion that the future doesn't exist is not true. The future exists in God's time frame, which is a timelessness. It just doesn't exist in our time frame, which is what they all have in common. And so the contingent future is already eternally present to God in some sense. Clearly, this is going to be a very difficult notion to elucidate in a coherent way, but I do my best to find the strongest models of divine timelessness to, to address. The notion, as we've talked about, the easy metaphor to use is God is up above everything as if on a mountain and he's looking down. And it's, it's like looking, as you've said in the past, you're looking at the parade, you're looking at the color guard at the head of the parade, you know, starting the parade while you're looking at the same time that the horse is at the end of the parade and the horse is always coming at the end of the parade so you don't step on horse pucky. And so you have the whole parade in front of you, but instead of a parade, what we have is the whole timeline of history before us. And so God can see Adam, Noah, Isaiah, Jesus, Thomas Aquinas, Joseph Smith, and President Monson all alive in the same moment of reality, all dead in the same moment of reality, all speaking and active, all laying in their coffins at the same moment of the eternal now. All, that's all present before him. However, I don't want to caricature this view. The distinctions that we're making, the chronological distinctions, are only chronological. They're not logical distinctions. They're not distinctions where we can make a chronological distinction. So God understands that George Washington is born before he dies and knows that he walks alongside the Potomac in the middle somewhere. These are, are distinctions that are available to God, but they're not distinctions that are, are in his time frame. They're just all before him at once. Yeah, I've always, at least when I was reading about this, I kind of pictured we're Superman fans, and there's a comic book called Kingdom Come where Superman has this room that he goes in, and it's just like this giant tunnel of screens tuned to like every TV channel all over the planet, and they're all on, and he's just in this room, and he can see what's happening pretty much in every part of the world all at once. That's how I've kind of pictured this timeless God. He's, let's say time is a stream, and he's not in the stream, he's stepped out of it and can see it. The concept makes sense to a point, but yeah, it's kind of hard to perceive for humans who obviously we don't perceive things that way. But I, I thought the parade analogy is a pretty good one from Thomas Aquinas in trying to explain that. Problems with that are those are all actually sort of happening at the same time, whereas we're talking about different time frames, and that is a little more complex than that. Well, and if one wants to maintain the law of transitivity so that if A equals B and B equals C, Obviously, we're going to have a logical contradiction because we would be saying in the same moment that Washington is walking alongside the Potomac, the Apollo 11 astronauts are walking on the moon in the same moment of time before God. And because they're all simultaneous with one another, they're all occurring at the same moment. But those who adopt divine timelessness don't want to assert that they're all occurring in the same moment. They're occurring in the time stream in different moments, but they're all present to be viewed or known before God at once. So I think that's the best way to elucidate that view. All right. So he says them at once, whereas they are actually before and after, but he doesn't perceive them that way because he sees them all. All right. And you go in and again show there have been, well, there probably are a lot of Mormon thinkers in the past that believe in this idea. Um, one you mention is Neil A. Maxwell and, and his idea of the eternal now and i know that you've had interactions with him specifically on this particular issue so what were his views and how does that play into the mormon concept of this i think that uh, elder maxwell obtained his view by reading essentially the teachings of joseph smith 
which is quoting a time and season 15 April 1842 article. I'm just going to quote it. It says, The great Jehovah contemplated the whole of the events connected with the earth pertaining to the plan of salvation before it rolled into existence, or ever the morning stars sang together for joy. The past, the present, and the future were and are with him one eternal now. He knew of the fall of Adam, the iniquities of the antediluvians, that's the people before the, the flood, the depths of the iniquity that would be connected with the human family. He knew the plan of salvation and pointed it out. And so, reading this kind of a statement, I think he concluded that the past, present, and the future are with him, before him all at once, one eternal now. And he wanted to be always faithful to what Joseph Smith taught. And so, he concluded that in some sense, Mormonism had adopted a notion of divine eternity the same way that Catholics had. In fact, in an article that he did in a book, he quoted Boethius in his notions of timelessness. When I met with him, Truman Madsen, who wanted me to meet with Elder Maxwell because I'd written a paper on divine timelessness, and Truman said, I've had a lot of talks with Neil, but I can't really straighten him out on this. And you've written this paper, which explains it more clearly than, than I think I can. Would you be willing to go talk some, some sense into him? I'm doing my best to quote him. It was pretty close to that. And I was uh, probably still am in a lot of senses. I was an arrogant young man. I thought, oh, yeah, I probably had to go talk some sense into him so he doesn't keep making the same mistake. <laughs> and so he made an appointment for me to go meet Elder Maxwell. I went with my good friend Wally Johnson, whom I've known for a long time. But Neil Maxwell was gracious, humble. We met with him, and we went into his office. He took his shoes off and kicked his stocking feet up on his desk and said, Well, I understand from Truman that, that I've made some mistakes, and you're here to straighten me out. And so I explained to him that the notion that Catholics had is fine because they don't believe in a material God. But there's no way to assert that the Mormon God is somehow timeless if God has a body because a body is extended in space and time of necessity. So, for instance, if God stretched out his arms, we could ask how long it would travel for any material object to travel between the, the distance from his fingertips of each of his arms. And so necessarily it would be in terms of miles per hour, it would be a time frame. And because time and space are interchangeable, if you have one, you have another. And if God is in space because he's material, then he's in time as well. I explained that to him, and he just listened, and he said, I can see that I probably misunderstood, and that I didn't understand that the notion held by Boethius is not one that we could adopt. He said, would you write a correction for me? And I wrote a letter to him where I, I was writing an article for Dialogue. It was eventually published, and I, I wrote a footnote in which I talked about our conversation, and with his permission, published the correction that he wanted to be published withdrawing, in essence, that notion of divine timelessness, more or less on his behalf. However, I want to point out that a little later, about a decade later, Neil Maxwell was writing an article, and he again asserted that God is outside of time, and that there's no before or after, but all is one eternal now with God. So I, I don't know if he changed his mind again, or if he forgot. <laughs> But, but I do want to say this. Neil Maxwell is one of the most intelligent and gracious people that I've ever met, and I have a huge respect for him. I miss him. I met with him many times, and I repent of ever having thought that I could teach him, to be honest with you. I should have just shut my mouth and listened. Last thing in the section I wanted to go over, and I just, I'll just i have you mostly explain it. I have a graphic here. And it's just kind of explaining the idea of time and perception. And you kind of use this metaphor of a guy on a train and two lightning strikes. And if you could, go ahead and just describe this idea and the differences in perceptions. Sure. Eleanor Stump and, and Norman Kretzmann were, for a time, the primary defenders of the notion of divine timelessness. They came up with the notion of what they called E.T. simultaneity. Their purpose was to point out that in the discussions of timelessness, we are assuming, for instance, the law of transitivity A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. They're pointing out that that law does not hold and that we shouldn't expect it to hold for time events because even in the theory of relativity, it doesn't hold. And they point out, so for instance, given the Einstein-Minkowski transformation theorems and their view of both the special theory and the general theory of relativity, and they actually use these kinds of thought experiments. 
Because light is a constant, it's always moving at the same speed, 186,000 and some miles per second. And it's the same for every observer in every inertial frame of reference. It's always the same speed of light. What that means is if I'm on a train and I'm moving at nine-tenths the speed of light, if I see a lightning strike that hits the front and the back of the train at the same time in my frame of reference, a person who is not on the train and is viewing the same events that is stationary relative to the train moving by at nine-tenths the speed of light, that observer will see the lightning hit the train on the front of the train before it hits the back of the train because the train is moving into that constant speed of light. And so the notion of simultaneity of these lightning strikes seems to be relative. It is relative to the inertial frame of reference of the observer. An inertial frame of reference is whatever I'm moving at, whatever my inertia is in terms of the frame of reference I exist in, light will be constant for me, but what I observe is simultaneous with something else won't be the same for, for both of us. And so this notion of what is now, there seems to be no now for events, <laughs> okay? Because what appears to for me to be occurring in the same now, the same temporal now, for another observer is not occurring at the same now. They're, they're occurring one before the other. And so they point out that our notion of what is simultaneous and, and what is occurring now is problematic. And so if we say that God knows all the past and what has occurred up to the present moment, they would point out that's, that's somewhat problematic because what is the present moment? What's occurring now? And if you're a God, what, you know, how do you view all inertial frames of reference? Because there seems to be no universal now. And so what they do is vixiate the notion that the eternal now entails a contradiction because it violates the law of transitivity. And it's a logical argument. It's a good logical argument, by the way. And so what we're really talking about now is the coherence of the notion of timelessness, when in reality what this chapter is about is God has perception in the eternal now of things that are in the temporal stream of time. And he knows it because it acts upon him. He perceives it the way we, we perceive things because they act upon us. And we're asking how that could possibly be. How could God know those things all at once? And they're responding, well, it's not incoherent to suppose that he knows all at once. And so I've, I've used that as a means of explaining the very notion itself. Sorry, so I'm a little bit confused if you just clarify this. So is this train thing that they're referencing, is that in support of God being able to perceive things all at once or refuting it? Because I, I thought it was in support until you just explained it, and it sounds like it was more refuting it. No, it's, the, it's an example that, and it's an example I came up, Stump and Kretzmann use a different example, but they're, they're responding to arguments that the notion of divine timelessness is simply incoherent because it violates the law of transitivity, so that Washington is walking alongside the Delaware at the same time as God sees him in the eternal now, and the Apollo 11 astronauts are walking on the moon in the same moment as God is in his eternal now. But since A equals B and B equals C, therefore Washington is walking alongside the Potomac in the same moment the Apollo 11 astronauts are walking on the moon, which is, of course, absurd. But what they're pointing out is that that law doesn't hold for notions of time in the theory of relativity, and we shouldn't expect it to hold for the divine. And, and what they do is they say, by analogy, God is kind of an inertial frame of reference that's different than ours. And so here's the problem with the entire notion. If there's no before or after, the very analogy that I've set up seems to be impossible. How does God see a lightning strike come out of the sky, hit the train, and disappear? Because they're not all occurring at once seems to me that the very notion of an event, something that takes time to, to occur, with everything being present all at once, how is the notion of an event even something that could be perceived? How does one make sense of that kind of a notion? This is a difficult notion, but what I want to point out is very simple, and that is there are real problems with divine timelessness, but my, my purpose in bringing it up isn't, because I have a later chapter where I deal with the logical problems of divine timelessness, here I'm merely explaining how the theory of divine timelessness works to suggest that God sees things in the divine timeless now. So more of his perception rather than if he is timeless himself. Right. And so I, I'm explaining how those who defend this notion would defend it. So we have the same two models with divine timelessness. God sees things in the temporal present, you know, in the time stream, because they act upon him to see them. 
in the same way that things, you know, light travels to our eyes to cause the photons hitting the retinal cells to cause us and then moving to the visual cortex of the brain to give us vision. But there's also another notion of divine timelessness, and that is that God causes everything to occur. We turn the causal influence around to go the opposite way. So the God is in his divine now, but he is causing things to occur in all moments all at once in the temporal stream of time. And so those are two different models of divine timelessness. All right. Well, I thought of kind of another analogy, but it does still pose the same problems. I don't know. This is just to help me make sense of it. So I am picturing now a person looking at a reel of movie film. So they can look at the entire movie, start to beginning at any moment. And when you play the movie, the perception is that it's passing. But to you, it's all just these different frames. But that falls into the same problems like, well, despite that, the problem isn't God's knowledge. It's that God can't interact with that still in any way. It is written. It is a movie from start to finish. And as you point out, at some point, the actors actually had to be performing that. Yeah, the problem with the view is the very same as with the problems of simple foreknowledge, and that is if God is seeing how things are in the temporal stream of time, and he knows what they are because they act upon him, then their existence is logically prior to God's knowledge of them, and God is stuck with whatever he just happens to see will be the case. So putting God's knowledge outside of time doesn't solve any of those problems. It just Yeah, it makes him an observer, and that is it. Yeah, but a very interesting observer because he's outside of time, but still just an observer. All right, well, I think that will wrap up my sections. So we're going to go into the next ones that Jacob's going to do. All right, and what you're talking about there is the Einstein-Minkowski space-time. And um, we actually covered quite a bit of this already when we went over the timeless knowledge through perception. But the Minkowski space-time is defined through a light cone. And if you wanted to go a little bit more in depth there, The theory of relativity is basically a theory of what is possible to perceive or be caused or have causal interaction with by light reaching us. And so there are regions of the universe that are beyond anything that we can see because the light will never reach us. And in the Minkowski space-time, what we have, I want to point out something about Minkowski space-time, and that is that this notion that there just is no now isn't really the way things work in the theory of relativity. There is a relative now, but there are still events that are in the absolute future. That is, they can't be coherently conceived within the relativity theory to be the same as my now, because they're in the future light cone, and there's no inertial frame of reference in which they occur at the same time. It's the same with the absolute past. And so there's a distinction between past and future that's retained even in the theory of relativity. And I think that's the important point, and that is simply that there is still a past and a present, that the present is relative, but there's also a future that is retained in the sense that they, I can't causally interact now with certain events in the future because they're not available to me in any inertial frame of reference. So that's the basic nuts and bolts of that. And then the theory goes in that God is in an eternal now. How does that differentiate? from our now. Our now is a fleeting present. By the moment I've spoken a word, I'm already moved on to the next present. So the now, I mean, depending on whether we think now is an instant or an interval of time or how we define now, now really is something that either it has no real measure at all because it's merely an an instant is, is what marks If I had an interval of time, say I had an interval of three seconds, I have a beginning of three seconds and end of three seconds. The instants are at the beginning of the end. It begins at the instant that the three seconds begins and ends at the instant that the three seconds ends. So an instance is just a way to mark an event of an interval of time, okay? If the now is conceived to be an instant, then it has no duration at all, (laughs) okay? And so it depends on, again, whether we're going to have in our notion of time, whether it will be a continuum or whether we'll have a notion of depthless and no-duration instance on how we define the now. God's eternal now is not like that. God's eternal now is a plenitude. Plenitude means it's a fullness. It's a fullness of the divine life. It's a fullness of the divine experience. It isn't something that merely marks an ending or a beginning. It's something that includes everything within it. So the way that medieval theologians spoke of the eternal now shouldn't be confused with the properties of our temporal time stream now. They're very different. 
And I don't want to shortchange the brilliance of the ideas that these people have come up with simply because I don't accept them. There are much deeper notions, but and we'll get into these problems later in the later chapter when we deal with timelessness at greater length. Here the question then becomes, we've just simply got the same problems all over again. If God in his eternal now knows the present and the future and the past because they are causing him to perceive them, then they're logically prior to his knowledge and providentially he can do nothing about it. If, on the other hand, God is causing the present to be what it is from the eternal now, then it can't really be contingent or free because it's brought about directly by God. And again, my free ex can't be brought about directly by God. So transforming these notions into timelessness does nothing to solve the problems that we had with simple foreknowledge and really is just another way of pointing out that timelessness is not a solution to the problems of foreknowledge. It really doesn't make any difference, in my opinion, to the issue of foreknowledge. When we get into the issue of compatibility of free will and timelessness, I'm going to point out again that I really don't think it makes a difference there either. It is a different model, but people somehow think that if, if they take and transform the temporal notions that we have and they convert them into notions of timelessness, somehow that's going to put these in a different light and resolve them, but it doesn't. And so that's how I and why I discuss them. Yeah, and like you said, there's still a transitivity issue that if God is in the eternal now and all these things happen simultaneously before him, then they are in fact simultaneous. It's not happening in different points for him. And in his eternal now, he's not able to interact with the temporal world. Yeah, the question is, what is the causal relation between the eternal now and the temporal stream of time? And that requires some real doing. We'll discuss that at greater length. I think it's chapter 11 when we get to it. Time, timelessness, and omnitemporality, where I develop a notion of divine time that includes all inertial frames of reference as the perspective from which God views things. But we'll get to that later. Okay. That takes us to the next section, which is timeless knowledge through divine causation. Thomas Aquinas saying that God knows things because his knowledge is actually causing them. A quote from him saying, God sees himself through his essence. And he sees other things not in themselves, but in himself, inasmuch as his essence contains the representations of things other than himself. If you go in a little bit deeper there. Yeah, it's a very interesting notion. It's an Aristotelian notion. The Aristotelian God is so perfect that to contemplate anything less than his own perfection would be a defect. And so God spends all eternity simply contemplating his own perfection. And that sounds fine if you're talking about a Greek God, but it doesn't really seem to match up very well with a Christian God, where God is so vitally concerned about our lives, and so much so that he loves us. And so the question is, if, if God is in fact in the eternal now, you know, God doesn't know anything because it acts upon him. Keep in mind that God is pure actuality. So how does God know things? And the fact is, well, God knows things because he sees them in his own nature. But God's nature is necessary. If God sees my free acts in his nature, then my acts are also necessary, and they're not free. So there's no possibility of contingency or free will if that's how God knows things. And the response that Aquinas actually gives at one point is, well, he kind of sees the archetype of things in his, you know, the, the, the ideal and the platonic idea of things in his essence. He doesn't see their particularity, but the question then arises, okay, he might see what it is to, there's a certain, for me, there would be a certain Blake Osler-ness, the essence of what it is to be me. But seeing the essence of me, how does he know what my free acts are that may or may not occur? It still doesn't give him any idea. But if God is actually bringing about my acts, he can know what they are because he brings them about. So Aquinas gives all of these answers about how God knows things. And he finally, I think, kind of mixes the responses. Finally, he ends up saying, well, God knows the particularity of things because he concurs with them. He brings them about. But then we have to ask again, how could there be any free acts? How could there be any contingency in the world if everything that happens is what God himself has decided to bring about through his own divine power? And so I don't think the Thomas have a great response to giving us a model of divine foreknowledge, a way that God could know things when we're asking in particular about future contingents, that is, future events that may or may not occur. Does that explain it for you? Yeah, and um, you go into three moments of his knowledge, uh, or at least that Thomas Aquinas wrote down. He says that, number one, God knows all things logically possible or potential. Number two, knowledge by which God selects 
from among logically possible alternatives and chooses to actualize those that his desires to in fact obtain. And number three, God sees in himself those things that will in fact obtain in the actual world. And then he sees his own will and brings it about. So the first moment is his knowledge of logically possible things. So stop and think about a moment. God knows all things that are logically possible because he knows the nature of what is logically possible. It's given in his nature to know that kind of thing because by being a very intelligent being who knows all things, he simply knows those things. That's part of his natural knowledge. He also has knowledge by which God selects from among the logically possible alternatives and chooses to actualize those that he desires to, in fact, obtain. So it's like, oh, I'm, I'm giving approval to these things to be. So this is his choice as to what shall exist from among the possible things that could exist. And then he has what he sees in himself, what in fact will be because he's chosen to bring it about. He sees it in himself because it's an expression of his own will. But again, I don't see how that solves the problem of future contingents because I'm still left with the fact that what occurs is what God has chosen to bring about in a sense by giving his approbation to it. Approbation means his approval. And so he's chosen among the logical possibilities what he's going to bring about, and then he brings about. But if my free acts are among those things that it brings about, the question is, how could they possibly be free? Because a free act is one that could be otherwise than it is. But if God brings it up, it can't be otherwise than it is. Yeah, it no longer is it, not only is it not a free act, it's no longer your act. <laughs> exactly, it would be God's act. So I don't think that this model of knowledge is a very promising model for giving us a model of how God knows future contingent acts. Yeah, it seems very Calvinist. God's already decided everything and that. Calvin came after Aquinas, so maybe Calvin seems too romantic to you, but the, the <laughs> truth is that, that. that I want to emphasize one thing. Going through Thomas Aquinas's works and reading them in Latin, I have a huge respect for his genius, and I don't want to underplay the genius in what he's doing. I don't agree with it. I think that it comes up logically short. But I think a good Thomas would come in and make all kinds of distinctions to suggest that, oh, maybe there's a way to make sense out of this. Because mm. some very brilliant people who still follow Thomas Aquinas. It's not going to work for me. I've spent the time with the Summa Theologica and, and the Summa Contra Gentiles in Latin. I've read a number of his works. And as I said, I just, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody in the history of the human family who was more intelligent than Thomas Aquinas. But for all of his genius, he still was not able, in my view, to give us a model of divine knowledge that would leave future acts free or contingent. What that shows is just how difficult it is to come up with a notion of divine providence that is actually consistent with free will, a notion that, that gives God sufficient divine knowledge to be able to be provident, and a notion of God's activity in the world that leaves us free. Very difficult task indeed. I point that out because I believe that Joseph Smith, through his revelations, accomplished it. And I want people to have an appreciation for the magnificent achievement that it is. Definitely. I think we're seeing line upon line. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, as long ago as he lived, maybe at that point it wasn't uh, something to be revealed at that time. I don't think he'd claim that his system was revealed. I think he'd claim that it was logical and adequate. Different notions. He would claim that it was based upon scriptural precedent and what, what had been revealed to that point. It was consistent with what the Catholics now call the magisterium and their teachings. He would claim all of that. But the reality is that in Aquinas' day, I don't think that a system had really been worked out that provided for sufficient divine providence that also allowed for divine freedom. So that covers the timeless knowledge through divine causation. Um, the next section would be middle knowledge. I understand that's going to be quite an undertaking, so we plan on pushing that to a second podcast. So I guess if there's anything else before moving on to that next time, is there anything else you want to discuss or, or clarify or go over? No, I think we can. I think we can leave it here. We're still stuck where God can't really tell Mary. What middle knowledge would allow is for God to tell Mary what would happen if she married Ralph, even though he knows that she marries John, because <laughs> that's the way the truth falls out. And he may even say, you're going to be happy. If you would have married Ralph, you would have been entirely happy. 
but I can't change what I've seen will be the case. You're still stuck with the fact that you're going to marry Ralph and be miserable, and I can't change it, and you can't change it. It's just the way that it is. I don't think he could have even seen that she would have been happy otherwise on the previous view. (laughs) On the prior view, what might have occurred is not available to God's knowledge. Think about it, and, and this is important to realize. So if God's knowledge is based upon what will occur in the future, that doesn't give knowledge to God of things as they could have been if they had been otherwise. So, for instance, and, and we'll get into this next week, you, you can't have a George Bailey revelation like in It's a Wonderful Life, how life would have been if different things had occurred, because different things didn't occur, and God didn't see things that didn't occur, because he has knowledge because the things that occurred caused him to have knowledge of them, or he caused the things to be that are, and so he knows what he's caused to be. So on these models of knowledge, the only thing that God knows is what, in fact, is the case in the future. And so there's no way for God to tell us how things could have been had they been different than they actually are. That's left to middle knowledge. And so what we're talking about is a perception model of knowledge, both in time and timeless, and a causal knowledge where God causes all things to be either in time or through timelessness. And on either of these, God can't tell Mary how it would have been if she'd married Ralph, because she didn't. And God can't flesh out the alternatives, because by the time he gets around to having his knowledge, the reality of what will be is already the case, and he can't change it. And so it doesn't matter how things could have been differently. The fact is they won't be differently, and God can't do anything about it. And neither can we. But like you said, he would have been able to realize it's a mistake. But God would have never known the future of Mary marrying Ralph. It could have been just as tragic in Ralph's example. He just would have known Ralph was an alternative, and marrying John would be a mistake. But like you said, he wouldn't be able to change anything. Yeah, it's, he's stuck with the way things are, and so is Mary. Which I believe shows the, the very severe problems. Um, now, there's a philosopher named David Hunt who's done a lot to develop the notion of simple foreknowledge. And he has all kinds of nuanced responses to these kinds of problems. None of them are convincing to me, and to go into them would take another four or five podcasts. But uh, I just want to register that those kind of things are out there, and if people want to explore that, they can read what David Hunt has to say on that issue. He's a very brilliant guy and has defended the notion of simple foreknowledge. All right. Well, good information. But, yeah, I think that wraps up what we wanted to cover today. So, again, thank you both for joining me, and we'll continue this next week. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.